invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I've been preaching through the letters of the Apostle Paul to Timothy this summer, and we started with 2 Timothy. I was sharing that with a pastor this past week who was here with his group, and it didn't catch him off guard because he knows me well. Why would you start with 2 Timothy? Well, there's a verse in 2 Timothy that I think is pivotal to understanding Scripture and understanding the letters of Paul to 1 and 2 Timothy, and it's 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, literally God-breathed and profitable. So two things we know about Scripture, breathed by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So then we backed up and looked at the whole letter of 2 Timothy, and now we're in 1 Timothy. And the title of today's message is Your Witness. I want you to think about that for a minute. Don't answer this out loud. But your witness, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and somebody followed your life, would they get closer to Christ or further away? And I don't say that to shame you if you're standing here today and you have to hang your head and say, you know, sometimes I've blown it because I've done that too. But my prayer for us and my prayer after this message would be that we would live lives that someone could follow our example and hear our words and know who Jesus is and how much He loves us. And come to faith in Christ. I've had some powerful encounters. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years and then a youth evangelist for a lot of years, for about 10 years. And the most powerful conversation I remember having with a, a student happened in Orlando, Florida. I've shared this story once or twice in the chapel, but it fits so well today because it talks about the power of a, of a positive witness. I was sitting in a youth conference with about 1,500 students. It was the last day. I was already as a youth pastor thinking about what I had to do to get our group on the road. We were watching. It was dark in the room. We were watching a group lead music, and the door opened. And so light comes in from the back, and it caught my attention. So I looked back, and a friend of mine was there, and he's pointing at me and saying, come here. And I got back to him, and he said, no, this is serious. Get your Bible, which I'm thinking... Everybody's in here. What's happening out there that I need my Bible? But I, I got my Bible. We're walking down this hallway, and he was one of the musicians that had been performing at this conference. And he had a table where he sold T-shirts and CDs of his music. He said, this girl has come up to my table, and I think she's demon-possessed. And the first thought that went through my mind, just being honest with you, was she came to your table. <laughs> I'm going back in here. But I couldn't do that, so I walked down this long hallway, and it was kind of like, you, you know, have you ever had portions of your life where theme music starts playing? You know, you know you're about to get bit by, jaw, by a shark if the theme song from Jaws starts playing. You know, get out of the water when you hear that. Unfortunately, we don't really have that kind of music going on, but I was hearing it that day. Just dun, dun. I walked through these doors, and I thought, Lord, I don't know what I'm about to get myself into. And it was a long conversation, but the most important part was this. This girl was not demon-possessed, but she had been abused by some demonic groups. Her father had been a part of that. And what she said was this. She said, I've been here this week. My father has never let me go anywhere, to church, youth camp, anything. He, I guess he let her go on this trip because it's Orlando, Florida. He was thinking Mickey Mouse, Disney World, or something. Let her go. She said, I've been watching these girls from this church group, and she said, they have something that I don't have, and I want it. And then she said, but I know I can never have it. 
And I said, why do you think you can never have that? Now, now stop for a minute and think about this group of girls. It wasn't many, four or five, had poured into her and just shown Jesus to her, had had a positive witness in this girl's life. Her name was Kim. To the extent that she had never heard the name Jesus mentioned in a positive way, only in profanity. She had never been to church. But she saw something. She saw hope in their life. She saw peace in their life. What did she see? She saw Jesus being lived out through them. And she wanted it desperately, but she thought she could never have it because of what had happened to her in her life. And she finally that day prayed to ask Christ into her life. And she said, when I get home, my dad will probably kill me. I've had teenagers tell you that before. I've kind of said that before. You know, you get bad grades on a report card. My parents are going to kill me. You don't mean it literally. She feared literally. And so I said, well, let's pray about that. And I bowed my head, and I didn't know what to say. It was just a lot of, um, God, I don't know how to pray, but I'm praying that somehow you'll spare her life. She's a brand-new believer in the kingdom. And the only two things I could think of, Lord, either get her father out of her life, because she wasn't living with her dad anymore. She was living with her grandparents. Either get him out of her life or bring him to faith in Christ too. God can do that kind of thing. While she's in Orlando, somebody could lead him to Christ. And so that was my prayer. We pack up, head back to our home. She headed to her home, happened to be in Mississippi. About a week later, I got a call from her youth pastor. He said, you're not going to believe this. It always bothers me when you pray something and God answers prayer. And you say, you're not going to believe this. God actually answered prayer. I said, what happened? He said, by the time she got home, her dad had been transferred in his job to Texas. He's, he's totally out of her life now. And I thought, yay, God, that's the supernatural God that we serve who's able to position Kim in a place where she's going to see the gospel lived out. And in the meantime, get the threat to her life out of her life. Never seen Kim again, but I'll see her one day in heaven. Because she saw something, not, not in me. It, it wasn't even one of the sermons or one of the musical groups that had performed that week. It was a group of girls who just lived Jesus out in front of her. What if that had been you? What if it had been a girl like Kim that had never heard the name Jesus in a positive way that came and hung out at your church or in your youth group or at your school or your job and they knew you were a believer? Would they see something in you that was different enough that it was attractive and they knew they've got something I don't have and I desperately want it? Let me read this passage. We're going to focus just on about three verses, but I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 6 and following. And pointing out these things to the brethren. Hold on a second. I'm going to put my glasses on. And pointing these things out to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. 
Show yourself an example of those who believe. So the first is the witness of the word, verse 6 and verse 11. He says, first of all, Timothy, in pointing these things out, this wasn't a command word that comes later in the passage. This is really more of a humble persuasion, a gentle prodding. It literally means to place underneath. So when Paul says to Timothy, point these things out. What's he talking about, these things? He's talking about what I've been teaching you and what I'm about to teach you. Timothy, you'll do well if you'll point these things out, literally like stones, stepping stones, over treacherous ground. Timothy, if you'll, by the Word of God, place this underneath people so it supports them over perilous ground and in, in the midst of perilous times, if you'll do that for the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul saw himself. That's how Paul saw Timothy, and that's what he's trying to teach Timothy. Timothy, you're serving the brethren at this church in Ephesus. You're a shepherd. And I want to say this to you. If you're a child of God, you may not have the title of preacher, but you've been called a minister. You're a shepherd also. And shepherds in the New Testament were prevalent. We don't deal with shepherds a lot, but I can tell you this. Shepherds weren't commended for their ability to pet the sheep. They were commended for their ability to protect the sheep. Protect the sheep from wolves that wanted to destroy them, to literally eat them up. And so when Paul says, Timothy, these things that I'm prescribing, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, for you to tell others, it's important because you're helping protect them in the midst of a generation where there's wolves, even inside the church. We've already seen Paul warning Timothy about men. He calls them by name who are damaging the flock of God, the precious children of God. They're damaging them. So, Timothy, you've got to know the truth and you've got to tell the truth. And so he says to Timothy, you're doing a good thing if you will prescribe or point out these things. And, Timothy, not only that, you'll be constantly nourished. Isn't that a great thing? What, what Paul is saying to Timothy, and it's really a godly principle mentioned in the Psalms, he who waters will himself be watered. He says, Timothy, as you study the Word of God, you're going to be constantly nourished. It's an ongoing thing. And as you minister the Word to other people, God is going to nourish you. So it's not out of dryness, Timothy. It's not out of rote memory. It's out of what God's doing in your life that it flows to other people. So, Timothy, you'll be constantly nourished by the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Teaching that is firmly rooted in the truth. And I love the fact he says to Timothy, Timothy, this is what you've been following. Timothy was ministering in a generation in a, in a church where you'll see in just a minute he was young. And so this letter, even though it was addressed to Timothy, was semi-private. It wasn't just going to be read by Timothy. The church is going to see this. And what the church is going to hear the Apostle Paul, who they respected greatly, say, what they're going to hear is, Timothy, you are following sound doctrine. If anybody in the church is questioning that, you've got the stamp of approval on the authority of the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> if there's any preachers in the room, wouldn't you like to have a letter to your deacon board or your elders from the Apostle Paul that says, this guy's doing it right? That's what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, you've been following this. This is the pattern that you've lived under. You heard sound doctrine from me, and you're proclaiming sound doctrine 
to the church. And then he gets a little bit more command-oriented. He says, prescribe and teach these things. Prescribe literally does mean to order a command. So in other words, apply this to the life of the church in Ephesus. Prescribe it. Teach it. Let the Word do its perfect result. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, unpack the Word of God because it is what is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not your Word. So there's the witness of the Word. But then our favorite verse that we like to share with students is verse 12. And that's Paul saying, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Now, don't raise your hand. But has anybody here ever felt like people are looking down on me for one reason, I'm just, just because I'm young? The word could mean young chronologically. It could mean young as in new. It could be that you're a new believer. Or it could just mean that you're young. You ever felt that way? Don't raise your hand on this one especially. Have you ever given them reason to feel that way? I did. I've been reminded periodically of my own youth, my own days as a teenager. I was talking to somebody not too long ago about a mission trip we went on, and it was amazing. There was three people, me, a guy named Jeff, and a guy named Tim, who they made sure we never roomed together because they knew you put these three in a room, especially by themselves, there's going to be trouble. So I always had to stay in a room with an adult. And I wasn't bad. I was just kind of into stuff. And it's kind of interesting. All three of us are in the ministry now. So if you're a youth pastor and you're thinking, yeah, I got three, I can tell you. I'm seeing names and faces right now. There may be hope. So Paul says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. I don't know how young Timothy was. He certainly wasn't a teenager. It had been about 15 years since Paul, on his second missionary journey, had encountered Timothy, led him to faith based on the witness of his godly grandmother, godly mother. He had been discipling him. It had been about 15 years. Some scholars think Timothy may have been as old as 40 years old. So how could somebody look down on him because he's young? It was the people in the church. The church at Ephesus was well-established. The elders at the church in Ephesus would have been older themselves and looked at Timothy as just this young whippersnapper. More than that, who had been the leader at church before Timothy? It was Paul. So you've got a group in the church that's saying, you know, we liked it when Paul was here. Now we've got this young guy. And we're older than he is. We're more knowledgeable than he is. We've been, we've come to, we've been knowing Jesus longer than he has. And Paul says, Timothy, don't let that be an excuse. And let me tell you, if you are young chronologically, don't think someday I'm going to live for God when I'm a little older and have more respect. I have seen churches revived because of the witness of teenagers. In fact, if you study the great awakenings in America, the first, there was a first awakening, a second awakening. There have been other revivals. More often than not, they were started by high school and college students. So don't let, don't let that be what stops you. Don't let anybody look down to think against you because you're young. And let me just say the flip side of this coin. Be careful, adults, that you don't discount the witness of a young lady or young man just because they're young. God taught me that lesson. I was at a camp with my youth group when I was a youth pastor. We were in Tennessee. We had this girl. She was a seventh-grade girl. She was new to the group, kind of shy. And we were going to do a talent show one of the last nights. She came and said, I want to sing in a talent show. And my first thought was, 
this may not go well. If she gets up and sings and it's not good, people are going to make fun of her. They don't know her. This is going to hurt her first impression. But how could I say no? So I said, okay. I let her sing. And when she stood up and opened her mouth, I'm on the back wall weeping. This girl could sing. Her name is Michelle Warren. She was runner-up Miss America a number of years ago during a time of conflict in Miss America. A lot of people thought she got whipped off. I did too. In case you're the one who won, I'm sorry. But what does that teach you? It teaches me this. Don't look down on somebody just because they're young. Some of the greatest influence and witness could come from a middle schooler. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't because it happens. So don't use it as an excuse but also be careful on the flip side of the coin that we don't discount just because somebody's young. But rather, show yourself an example. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, yes, Timothy, you're young. You're younger than the leadership of the church. You're considered young, and some people have kind of discounted you because of that. Live your life in such a way, and your speech and your conduct in these five things we're going to look at, so it sets an example to them and for them. So I want to say that to teenagers. Listen, live your life in a way that, that sets an example for believers. Because your friends are going to be impacted more, probably, more by your life than they are my life or the preacher at your church. And then there's five things. Set yourself an example. Literally leave a footprint behind that somebody else can follow. The word example means a stamp or even a scar, a shape, a pattern, an impression you leave. Footprints others can follow. I love Westerns. I love the old gun smoke, especially the black and white gun smoke. And what do they do when they're tracking somebody? They get off their horse and they look at a hoof print. Came through here three hours ago. And how do they know that? <laughs> well, it's television. But you can follow prints that are left behind. On a bad note, you ever see somebody wearing blue jeans that got a circle in their back pocket? What's that evidence of? They're dipping tobacco. I asked a guy one time, I said, you still dipping tobacco? He said, how would you know I dipped tobacco? I said, it's written all over the back of your pants. You didn't even have a can in your back pocket, but there's an outline that's been left there. We're all leaving outlines. Hopefully it's not tobacco. It's our life. So Paul says to Timothy, set an example. Leave a pattern. Leave footprints behind that somebody else could follow. And if they do follow, they're going to get closer to Christ. The first word that he uses is setting example of those who believe or for those who believe in speech. Literally the word logos. See, speech reflects what's in your heart. I, I've talked to groups about that before. And if some are, especially if they're dealing with profanity. I say, what do you say when you drop a brick on your foot? I say, ouch. The reason I don't use profanity is it's not a part of my life. It used to be. That used to be the first thing that would come out of my mouth. It's not anymore because I don't use that kind of language. So be careful with your speech. You don't want your speech, what comes out of your mouth, to totally tear down everything you'd like for people to think about you. See, I think the happiest people in the world ought to be the workers at Walmart. How many folks worked at Walmart? You know, you got those smocks on. You got the smiley faces. Do they still do smiley faces? Did you get a smiley face? No. I was at a Walmart in Gastonia. We got some Gaston County area people here, Bessemer City. 
was at the Walmart in Gastonia one time, and I, I, when I go into Walmart, I'm trying to get in and out as quick as possible. Why they have 45 cash registers and only like three are open at one time, I don't know. I'm glad they've offered that U-scan thing. That's cool. Because I do that. You don't even have to talk to people. But you get in and get out as fast as you can. Well, I didn't do the U-scan on this particular occasion. I get behind one lady. There's only one person in front of me. I've got my buggy. I recommend you get a buggy at Walmart because it's an offensive weapon. You can kind of keep people at bay and show your intentions. I'm heading down that aisle. I got in this line, and the Walmart lady, she's got the smock on. She's got the smiley face, the name tag. She went berserk. She starts hitting her watch. She said, my watch has stopped. And she looked at me. I don't know why she didn't look at the lady in front of her and, and ask her, but she looked at me and said, what time is it? Oh, lady, it can be any time you want it to be. You just tell me what time you want it to be. I'll get on the microphone, make a general announcement to the entire Walmart population. For the rest of your time in our store, it's 9 a.m. I know you think it's later, but there's a berserk woman at the front of the store. We need to calm her down. Well, the lady paid her bill and gets out of the store, and she looks at me, and here's what she said. She said, it's probably just a dead battery. I could go back there and get another battery, but I don't like Walmart stuff. This is a true story. I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm buying Walmart stuff. And you're working at Walmart telling me you don't shop here. What does that say? That kind of tells me maybe I need to rethink shopping there myself. Now, I still shop at Walmart. Because if they don't have it, you don't need it. But if you think about that in the Christian life, you want people to believe you're a Christian, and then you open your mouth, and either through profanity or lies or slander or backbiting or negative humor or tearing somebody down, what does that say about who Jesus really is to you? It basically says he hasn't made a big impact in your life. So Paul says, Timothy, set an example. And the first word that he uses is the word speech. Then he uses the word conduct or behavior or life. Let me ask you something. Which speaks louder? What you say or what you do? This is a principle. When I was a young kid, I remember looking out the front door, and there was a guy in the street bouncing a basketball. And I could see the ball hit the ground before I could hear the ball hit the ground. I thought, well, that's weird. I didn't understand the principle that light travels faster than sound. I thought it was a special Walmart basketball or something. I didn't know. How do you get this time-delayed Walmart basketball? But the truth is, actions speak louder than words. So, yes, it's important what comes out of your mouth, but it's just as important, if not more important, what comes out of your life, in your conduct. These have to match. If you claim to be a believer but live like you're not, what are people going to believe? They're going to believe you're just all talk. So your conduct has to match up what you say you believe about Jesus. And I know the popular quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says this, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. I've done some research on that. There's no real proof that he ever said that. But if you look at his life, he didn't live that because he made a point of going places to tell people the gospel. So if you're, if you're one of the, I think it's a cop-out. 
to say, well, I'm just going to live live with my life. I'm not going to open my mouth and tell anybody the reason for the hope that's within me, which is a command in Scripture. I'm just going to, and I'll get the T-shirt that blames it on St. Francis of Assisi. No, it's important that the two match up, that you have a conduct that would ask people what's different about you, and you by your words are able to tell them it's because I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Romans 10 puts it this way. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And that word for preacher doesn't mean the one that's paid to preach. It means a verbal witness. So speech and conduct need to match up. Let me move along. We've got three minutes. So, Timothy, you're going to set an example in the way you talk, in the way you live, and the way you love. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 35. He said, the world, them, they will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. If an unbeliever walked into your church, the way you treat each other at church, would they know that you love each other? Or would they walk into your church and think, these people are miserable. These people don't even like each other. I'm going somewhere else. I'll find more acceptance at Walmart. It ought to be that your church and your life is characterized by the kind of love God demonstrates, which is not about feelings. I'm so glad that God loved me even when I was a sinner. And he proved it by dying on the cross. Biblical love is way different than the emotional love that our culture calls love. And then the word faith. Let me ask you a question. What in your life right now is requiring faith? Some people live the Christian life and never really have to depend on God. There ought to be things in your life that are way bigger than you, and if God doesn't show up, we're all in trouble. That's faith. Firm persuasion, moral conviction. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, or the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Sometimes we use a chair to demonstrate faith, and I just want to say, that's the beginning of faith, but that's really more trust, because I can see the chair. There's things in your life, the longer you walk with Christ, the more faith is not about sight, it's about knowing God. And you don't see what's around the next corner. You don't see what's down the road. But you know God. And you know God's told you to go that way. And you take steps where if he doesn't catch you, you're going to fall flat on your face. I didn't see a single one of you test your chair out when you came in here today. Anybody ever went to sit in a chair? It wasn't there when you went to sit in it? I should have been smart enough when my older brother said, sit here. Because he wanted to pull the chair out from under. You ever sat in a chair that didn't hold you when you sat in it? That's more about trust, and that's the beginning of walking with God. But faith is not about what you see. In fact, Hebrews 11, 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to Him must believe that He is or that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So when Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, by your faith, set an example. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy... It's impossible to please God without faith. 
And then the last one is purity. Purity, literally free from defilement, not contaminated, primarily talking about sexual purity. But it basically means there's nothing you're allowing into your life that's contaminating your life. That could be what you listen to, what you watch, even who you hang out with. I wish we would get to the point where we were so turned off by the things of this world that would contaminate and stain us that we'd never get close to it. I was leaving town one day, and on the radio they had a recall pronounced for an apple juice brand. So I thought, well, this is interesting. We have apple juice at home. Let me see what brand it is. And the, the makers of the apple juice, the company came on and said, it's really nothing to be alarmed about. We're doing the recall because there's mold in the apple juice. But it's nothing, again, it's not a health issue. It's just, it's only for cosmetic reasons. In other words, when you shake up your apple juice, there's going to be like blue stuff floating around. Well, I don't know about you. But I don't want to drink apple juice that's got mold in it. I don't care if it is just for cosmetic reasons. I didn't really want chunky apple juice. Unless it's apple. And if that grosses you out a little bit, I hope it does because it ought to be that way with our life. To live a pure life means you're free from contamination. You're not allowing the things of this world to enter your life that would contaminate you. And when they do, you are quick to get them out of your life. What's Paul saying to Timothy? Timothy, you're ministering in a town called Ephesus where worldliness and wealth and ungodliness is very prevalent. And it's creeping into the church, Timothy. We've got to guard the church. What's Paul saying to you through this passage? You may not be the pastor at the church. You may be young. You may feel like nobody listens to you. But let me tell you something. You live a godly life, you'll get noticed. Because it's so unusual this day and age. So set an example. Set an example of who a believer is, but set an example also for other believers. In the way you talk, the way you live, the way you love, the way you believe, and the purity of your life. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and really the challenge to us, not just for Timothy as a young preacher. But Lord, the challenge that we would live a life that's worthy of our calling. That we would live a life that shows other people the truth about who Jesus is. We live the kind of life that God could use as an example to draw people to Himself. And Lord, it doesn't mean we're perfect because we fail. Lord, it means that we confess that, we acknowledge it, and we get back in the game, living a life that truly and accurately reflects who Jesus is. And that's really only possible because of the power of Jesus that lives through us. We cannot do that apart from Christ. It's impossible. So I pray on behalf of men and women and young people in this place. we would daily believe you and allow you to live that kind of life out through us in Christ's name. I invite you to